Well, New Life Manitou, I'm glad to see you once again. Um, if you have short-term memory problems, go see a doctor. And I'm, uh, I will remind you that my name's Brett. I'm, I'm one of the pastors with New Life. And it is my immense joy this morning to introduce you to uh, our esteemed speaker this morning. Uh, we have the one and only associate pastor of New Life East, Rory Kendrick Green, is in the house this morning. Yes! Yes! And so uh, Rory and his family, they moved here uh, from where? Texas, of course. The great nation of Texas is where they moved from. And uh, they, they moved here last year, um, Rory and his wife, Brooke, and then their two little ones. Uh, and so we're really glad to have them this morning. And so if you could put your hands together, give some love and appreciation for the one and only Rory. Thanks, bro. What are we doing? I don't know, man. <laughs> well, New Life Manitou, thank you so much for having me. As Brett said, um, my wife and I, we moved here about 10 months ago, uh, getting close to a year. We moved from Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas, but I'll just let you know we are not from Texas. I just need to like, I feel like there's some clarification needed there. We're both from the Midwest. We lived in Texas for like six years, um, but I've become the guy who is from Texas here at New Life. And I just like to clarify, I really love barbecue and that's about it from Texas. So I just want to like, <laughs> let's just get that out of the way. Um, ben, but I'm so glad to be joining you. You know, over at New Life East, and I, I think a lot of our congregations over the last few weeks have really sort of dove into a conversation about the church, um, what the church is, what it looks like for us to be a part of this thing called the church, and what it becomes in the world in which we live. And one of the things that we've been using sort of as a, a phrase to think about the church is that the church is a sign. The church is a sign of the coming kingdom of God. What that means is that the church sort of serves as a preview for what the full reign of Jesus in the world looks like when there's no more sadness, no more mourning, when we don't go outside and carry around anxiety and fear and, and worry. But what the church serves as is this sort of glimpse into what the kingdom of God will look like one day. I heard a story not long ago about a, a well-known evangelist who was in Hong Kong. His name's Raymond Fung. For some of you who are like really church nerd, smart people, that name might mean something. For the rest of us normal folk, it means nothing. Raymond Fung was a, a well-known evangelist in Hong Kong. And one day he was sitting down having breakfast with a, a local textile worker. And they're having a conversation about faith and life and the questions that many of us wrestle with. And Raymond looks at him and he says, man, I really think you should come and join me at church, and this was a, a difficult request for a textile worker at the time because for him, his job, uh, if he wanted to go to church on a Sunday, he had to take a whole day off, which meant no wage, no pay. It meant that his family would suffer for a decision like this. But as they sit and have more conversations together, Raymond finally sort of convinces him, man, I think you need to come to church. I think it'll be a really significant experience for you. Maybe some of you, that's how you ended up in church. Someone just peer pressured you across a coffee table long enough and you ended up in a church. So this textile worker, he decides, okay, I'm gonna come to church. That Sunday he shows up and the pastor preaches a fiery, convicting message. And this man, this textile worker, he hears it and he's deeply moved by it. Raymond and this man, they connect after that service and he says, tell me what you thought. And he said, man, as I listened to the pastor preach, I realized that many of the things he was saying about me were true. That the sin that he was calling out in my life was true, that I'm lazy, that I'm addicted to cheap entertainment, that I'm, 
I'm not living a life that is worthy of the honor of Jesus. He says, I realize this. And Raymond, who's an evangelist for a living, is starting to get really excited. You know, he's doing the thing in his head. He's like, I got another one. And he realizes, though, that this man is, is also slightly troubled. And the man looks across the table at, at Raymond and he says, you know, the things that this pastor listed off were true. But I thought it was really interesting that he didn't have anything to say about my boss. And he says, well, what, is, what do you mean he didn't have anything to say about your boss? He said, well, he called out the sins of people like me, normal people. But he, he didn't say anything about how my boss makes us work unpaid overtime. He didn't say anything about how many of the managers and owners of these textile corporations are using child slave labor to make their clothes. He said the, the pastor didn't say anything about the sort of unethical business practices that he has. And Raymond has this moment. As a longstanding member of this church and someone who invites people to this church all the time, he remembers that in the room that day were those managers, leaders of the the textile factories and the industries in their area. And he realizes that not only did that day the pastor not say anything about those people, but he rarely has anything to say to those people. And as they sit and have this conversation, the textile worker looks at him and he says, I realize more than anything that I am in fact a sinner who is in need of Jesus. But any church that can't speak to the things, the wrongs, the injustices in the world around me, I don't know that I could give my life to it. And it's fascinating, the way that the story ends is the man just simply gets up and leaves and Raymond never sees him again. Many people in our world, in fact, would say some similar things about the church, some of the difficulties that they wrestle with, that as they look out into the world, they see that the church has a lot to say about the moral and sort of ethical implications of our individual lives. But the church seems to either be silent or way too loud about many of the social things that we see going on in the world around us. So what I wanna to do today um, is talk about this idea of what is the church's role in speaking truth to power? What is the church's role in speaking truth to power? That's a phrase that's been used for about the last 100 years or so. And the phrase is really a, a phrase that's asking, you know, what is the church's role in society today? What is the church's role outside of our four walls? What is the church's role as we see injustice? What is the church's role in politics? What is the church's role in, in the world in which we live in? And one of the things my mom taught me growing up is that when you meet someone for the first time, as we are right now, there are two things you don't discuss, and that's religion and politics. Um, but we're gonna go ahead and talk about both today. So this should be a really fun time. But I, I wanna sort of drop the tense Tenseness, the anxiety in the room, if any of you are concerned, why is the church gonna even address the political world, the social world in which we live in? Here's what I'm not gonna stand up here and do today. Um, I'm not gonna stand up here and tell you which political party is right or wrong, because I'm not interested in doing that. I'm not gonna stand up here and tell you which way I think Jesus would vote in our world, because I, I don't know which way Jesus would vote in our world. I'm not gonna stand up here and tell you how to think about every hot button issue that arises, right? We live in a world of an overload of information. It feels like in the next 48 hours, we're gonna have some new issue that we need to have an opinion about and have something to say. What I simply wanna do is present and propose to you this idea about the church. And when I say church, I don't obviously mean like the four walls. I mean us as followers of Jesus who sit, sit in this space right now. Here's what I wanna propose to you about the church. I wanna simply say this today, that the church, the church's role in speaking truth to power is to be a prophetic voice that is neither right, left, nor religious, but is faithful to the way of Jesus. 
that the role, the church's role in speaking truth to power is to be a prophetic voice that is neither right, left, nor religious, but to be faithful to the way of Jesus. Sound good? Some of you are like, no, I'm not sure. I think I might wanna leave. That's fine. We're gonna go ahead and pray real quick. And then if you wanna like run away, you can, I won't judge you. Let's pray. God, we are thankful that we get to gather as a, a tribe of people who are, who are looking to Jesus as the ruler of our lives. And what that means is that as we encounter things in our world that are challenging and difficult and full of tension and questions and potentially tumultuous, is that Jesus, we're looking to you to give us a way to move through this world. Not just to exist in it, but to live meaningfully in this world. And so as we wrestle with this idea of what the church's role is in speaking truth to power, we ask that you would, you would give us clarity of thought, that you would give us a humility as we wrestle with this idea, that you would give us a sense that you are in the midst of every part of life. And so therefore, the way that we think about the world, the way that we discuss the world, the way that we preach, the way that we think is extremely important. Because Jesus, the ultimate goal of the church is to be a sign of the coming kingdom. So would you help us be that? Would you shape us and would you form us this morning? We ask all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. amen. If you have a Bible, we're gonna start in the book of Jeremiah, and then we're gonna hop around the Gospels a little bit. Um, I want us to get sort of a full picture of, of what I'm trying to maybe propose to you today. If, if you're unfamiliar with who Jeremiah is, Jeremiah was a prophet who was called by God and he was called to go to the religious and political leaders of his day and essentially challenge the way that they had been leading and running the people of God, which is a difficult thing. But Jeremiah, he goes and he does this. And as he does this, and I think this is beautiful, Jeremiah commits himself to this for about 20 years or so. Jeremiah, this great prophet, submits himself to the call of the Lord for about 20 years to speak prophetically, to speak truth to the powers that be, which I think before we even hop into the scriptures, what's important to notice about that is that it can be easy for us when we think about what it means to speak prophetically, to have the vision of like someone walking across a room in a church gathering and saying something and then they get to leave, right? They get to just sort of lay a truth bomb down and then just leave. But what Jeremiah gives us a picture of is that if we wanna be people who speak prophetically and do it faithfully, is it's not something that just happens one time. It's not the one time we choose to air out our opinion on social media, but it is in fact a faithful way to continue to walk with God as we recognize what he is trying to do in this world. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse one, it says, this is what the Lord says, Speaking to Jeremiah, go down to the palace of the king of Judah and proclaim this message there. Hear the word of the Lord to you, king of Judah, you who sit on David's throne, you, your officials and your people who come through these gates. This is what the Lord says. Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. For if you are careful to carry out these commands, then kings who sit on David's throne will come through the gates of this palace, riding in chariots and on horses, accompanied by their officials and their people. He says, but if you do not obey these commands, declares the Lord, I swear by myself that this palace will become a ruin. Recognize what God is actually asking of Jeremiah in this moment. He says, I want you to go to the most powerful people that you can find. 
And I want you to tell them that they need to quit doing wrong to people. They need to quit oppressing those who are in the city. They need to quit being the hands that are shedding innocent blood, the ones who are causing the very injustice that they see. This is a big task for some just typical priests to walk up to these religious and political leaders and say, I see what you're doing and it's wrong. So stop it. Which I don't know if you've ever recognized this in the world in which we live, but uh, people in power don't tend to respond very well to that. They don't tend to love when someone shows up and says, hey, you're wrong. Would you behave differently? Rarely do they go, oh my gosh, you're so right. I should change right now. I should soften my heart and bow down low. So Jeremiah says, listen, If you don't do this, the very place that you sit in power, the very center of power for you is going to crumble like ash. It will just simply fall to pieces. And this is honestly the part of speaking prophetically that many of us like, the sort of like, I'm gonna speak boldly and strongly and make a threat and then I'm gonna like leave. But notice what Jeremiah also says about this. He doesn't just show up and say, either get this right or things are gonna fall to pieces. In fact, what Jeremiah does is he looks at them and says, but if you get this right, he says the phrase, the chariots and kings and princes will actually come through these gates riding on horses and in chariots. To to help you understand this, this is code for something in the Bible. The Bible often speaks in code this way. There are moments when kings and princes would ride through on chariots and horses, and you know what it was? It was wartime. It was when they came back from a battle and they had won. It was a sign that there was security now for the people who lived there. It was a sign that these people could now thrive and live good lives. So what is Jeremiah saying? He says, well, if you get this wrong, he's using a prophetic voice, but if you get this wrong, the very place that you stand in power is going to fall and crumble to pieces. But if you get this right, what's gonna happen? Well, all of humanity will thrive and flourish. This is what it ultimately means to speak as the church with a prophetic voice is to not just be the voice that points out all the things going wrong in the world. That's quite easy to do. We could, we could have fun. We could do that for about 20 minutes in here. Pointing out all the things that are wrong and making note of all the people who are getting it wrong and letting them know that if they don't get it right, things are gonna go bad for them. But part of speaking prophetically, part of speaking truth to power is also being the voice that says, but if you can get this right, think of who will benefit from it. The orphans and the widows among you will not be lonely and without homes. The people who are experiencing injustice and pain and violence will no longer have to if we can begin to get these things right. This is what the church's role has been for thousands of years, to speak outside of its little bubble and to speak to those who are in authority, those who have control over the cities and the communities and the states and the countries that we live in, and to say, listen, you may not recognize the pain that is going on down here, but if we change things, things can actually get better. But as we've already said, it's very difficult for people in power to often hear things like that, right? Jeremiah, even at one point after this, finds himself locked up in in the stocks, standing there to be humiliated because he just had the bravery and the guts to do what God said, to speak truth to power. The truth is in the world in which we live, as we begin to use our voice more prophetically to challenge the systems and the things that we see going on around us, it will leave many of us without a political home. It will leave many of us without a camp or a tribe to find ourselves in. And there will be moments where you feel like you're sort of walking through this world, not knowing where you quite belong, who agrees with you, who disagrees with you. 
But I would actually propose to you, friend, that that's actually a really good place to be in our world. In a world that is constantly attempting to polarize us, to make us find a place on the left or on the right, and if we don't fit in there, well, then we're just kind of apathetic and worthless in this conversation. Jesus would actually find himself often in that middle ground. I want to sort of poke the bear this morning, so just grace with me for a minute. Jesus, amen. Jesus often found himself stuck between two polarizing views in the scriptures. We see this all the time in the gospels. There was one group called the Sadducees. Now, if you grew up in church, you often heard about the Sadducees because the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. So the ongoing joke in church is that that is why they were. Yes. Gosh, Christians being funny since one AD. Um, the Sadducees, they, they were the elite class of the day. They found themselves in the, the sort of urban center of Jerusalem. They were the ones who didn't believe in a, in a resurrection. They, in fact, had sort of jettisoned themselves from the messianic hope of, of Israel. And, and you can read through historical documents what the Sadducees were pretty well known for is sort of having these moments where they would say, it doesn't seem like God is really like moving at the pace at which we would like him to. And so we're going to take control. We're going to capitalize on these positions of power that we have, and we're going to do what's best for the people. Now, what I would say is good about the Sadducees is they had a high concern for social issues. They paid attention to the people who were hurting. They didn't always do everything that they could to help them, but they were very aware of it. In fact, I think of a moment in the gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 12. If you want to flip there real quick, you can. If not, it'll be up on the screen. There's this moment in Mark, it says, then the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him, him being Jesus with a question. And they are about to give him the all-time hypothetical question that you could ever give someone. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers the first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. This, uh, the, majority, the, the moral of the story is this woman had a rough life. She has been married to seven different men. All of them were brothers. If you were hoping to get out of the family, you just couldn't. She finds herself in this moment. The Sadducees, who believe there is no resurrection, ask the question, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Now, it's an interesting question because they are clearly asking a hypothetical, but it's a social issue question. It's what happens to this woman. And it's beautiful because there's a law that gets crafted in the Old Testament that was implemented to allow a thing like this to happen so that if a woman's husband died, she wouldn't just be left without any protection without any financial security, without any identity. And so there's this clause in it that allows a woman to marry the brother, right? It, it, it's a beautiful thing that God implements. But the question that they're asking about this social issue, this high, highly concerning one, what happens to this woman? What they've messed up is they're talking to someone in Jesus who believes in the resurrection. They don't. And so Jesus responds this way, verse 24. He says, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven, the angels they don't believe in, by the way. 
Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses in the account of the burning bush how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Jesus has this moment with this one group, this polarizing group. I would propose to you that the Sadducees look a little bit like what modern progressives look like, highly concerned about social issues as we should be. But what Jesus challenges them on is you are actually missing out. You're so focused on what's happening right here in this moment, you're actually missing out on the divine power of God. I would say that what Jesus looks at them and says is you're so focused on this issue right here in this moment, you're missing an eternal perspective about what might be happening with something like this. So Jesus finds himself pinned against these Sadducees who I would say stand sort of to the left of him. But then Jesus also has moments where he wars with another group that I would say stands to the right of him in the Pharisees. If you grew up around church, you're probably more familiar with the Pharisees. We read those stories a little bit more often. The, the Pharisees were sort of the middle class group. They were from the sub, suburban, rural areas of, of Jesus's land at this point. They're, they're sort of out. They're the, the good old boys who are, who are fighting for the people. They're, they're the people's people. And Jesus never quite finds himself agreeing with this group of people ever. They were all about the Torah. These were folks who, they didn't just read the Torah. They had their kids read the Torah. They memorized the Torah. They're the kids that if you ever go to church, you find them. Their parents are like really good parents. And if you're like me and my wife, we're like, we should read the Bible with our children more. Anyways, we find them all throughout the scriptures. They know everything about the law that you could possibly know. And they constantly challenge Jesus. I think about a moment in John chapter five where Jesus looks at the Pharisees and he says this. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. There's a joke that often goes around the church that what many people believe in is Father, Son, and the Holy Bible. You might be able to make that accusation of these folks. He says, these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. What a harsh statement. Jesus looks at this group of people and he says, you got all the rules right. You understand the moral and ethical implications of every decision that we make. You understand how it affects all of society, but the way in which you are carrying it out feels loveless. It feels harsh. It feels brutal. It feels difficult for people to grapple with. I think of another moment in John chapter eight, the story of the adulterous woman. Jesus is outside of the temple and the Pharisees bring this woman who has been caught in adultery. But what's pretty sad about how this moment plays out is they bring her to Jesus, they throw her in the dirt and they look at him and say, Moses says we should stone this woman. What do you say? Which what the scriptures point out is that it's a trap for Jesus. They wanna find out, are you gonna throw rocks at this woman or are you gonna break what Moses said? Again, they know the rules. They know the standards and living by those are important. But the challenge for this party that stands to the right of Jesus, this group of people, is that the way in which they are carrying themselves is not actually concerned about people. It's actually become more concerned about if we are getting everything right, so much so that they would rather trap God than just show love to people. Why do I bring all this up? Because I believe to have a prophetic voice for the church as we think about society and the political world in which we live in, 
is that often we are gonna find ourselves standing to the left of those who would identify as conservative and we are gonna find ourselves standing to the right of those who would maybe find, identify themselves as progressive, which is where Jesus often found himself, standing in this spot with no clear home, no clear tribe, and yet what Jesus constantly did was say, you guys are both missing the kingdom of God. You're missing the whole picture. Some of, you're getting some things right. You, you're getting some things right, but you're missing the whole picture. So the temptation for the church, I think, is to go, okay, well, I don't have a home on the left. I don't have a home on the right. So I must stand in the middle and be this religious powerhouse. But Jesus actually didn't do that either. Partially because I think the way that Jesus viewed Christianity, I don't think Jesus thought, you know what I'm building here is a new religion. I'm building a new thing. There's gonna be a book about it. It's gonna be great. It's gonna be the highest sold book of all time. I don't think Jesus thought that as he was sort of walking through his life. Jesus, I think, was keenly aware that he was doing something more. I, I wanna propose this to you today. That Christianity is, in fact, not a religion. It's a way of living, which makes it a politic. Now, here's what I mean by that. It doesn't mean that the church is inherently political. A politic, though, is anything that forces you to ask the questions about how we live and move in society. Questions like, how do I treat the people that I love? How do I treat the people that I'm not sure if they like me? How do I treat my enemies? What do I do with my resources? What's an appropriate way to steward my home? What's an appropriate way to sort of build up the communities in which I live in? That's what a politic is. And believe it or not, the kingdom of God has an answer for all of those questions. You think about the question, what do I do with my resources? Well, what Jesus made clear is that our resources were actually not our own. They were gifts from God and that our call is to steward them, meaning that it is not our job or our responsibility to stretch the dollar as far as we can stretch it. It's not our job to capitalize on every bit of economic advantage that we could find, but it is in our fact simply to steward our resources in the way that they should. Jesus views Christianity as an answer to many of these questions as we move throughout society and we wrestle with what we're doing. What that means though for the church is that while we may not stand on the right or on the left, we're also not going to say that we will be apathetic to the world in which we live. I see too many people far too often, they step into a church, they hear a church talk about politics and social life and what they think is being suggested is is that they take this middle road where they don't actually stand for anything. They just kind of nod their head, they say I love you to people and then they move on. I would propose to you that that's not what Jesus is suggesting here. Jesus is suggesting that in fact, our faith plays a significant role in how we move through society and through the political issues of the world. But it's never easy, is it? It's pretty difficult when you get on social media and you see your friends, they've posted something about some hot topic and they're drawing a line in the sand. It's pretty difficult when you go to Thanksgiving dinner and you can't even get into the turkey before somebody has said something about who the current president is or the past president or who the next president should be. It's never easy to try to stand in this spot where you're going, I'm not gonna align here, I'm not gonna align here, I'm not gonna be apathetic, I'm gonna engage in some way. Church, here is what I wanna propose to you is that while the church's role is to be a prophetic voice that is neither right, left, nor religious, it's meant to be faithful to the way of Jesus and here's what that means for us. To live faithfully to the way of Jesus is to remember that the ultimate goal is sacrificial love. Yes. Now this might feel a little cliche. I recognize that. 
We're talking about a world in which issues are big. Issues feel like they're insurmountable. And what the pastor is gonna propose to you today is that the primary role of Christians in the world, in our social life, is to live sacrificially with love. I actually would say that what Jesus did in one of his last conversations with one of his closest disciples was set this forward as the entire vision of what the church should be. If you have a Bible, John 13, Jesus says this, John chapter 13. It says, when he was gone, Jesus said, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. Let's keep going. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the son in himself and will glorify him at once. And for his disciples, they're still wrestling with what exactly Jesus is sort of asserting is about to happen to him. Jesus says, my children, he's talking to his disciples. He says, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I will tell you now where I am going, you cannot come. Now hold here for one second. Think about what Jesus is saying. He says, listen, where I'm about to go, you cannot come. But after I depart, you will in fact look for me. Now Jesus in just a a little bit is gonna actually suggest that the spirit will come, be the advocate, be the one who stands with us. So what Jesus says is that he will never actually leave us. The spirit will be this ongoing, continuous presence of Jesus on earth. Yet what he says to these guys is that I'm gonna go away and you're gonna look for me. As we think about what we're talking about today, what I would propose to you is that Jesus is sort of getting at Jesus is looking at them and saying, I'm gonna go away. Your savior is going to go away, but you're still gonna look for me. There are gonna be moments where the world feels like it's falling apart and you're still gonna look for someone to rescue, someone to save, someone to redeem everything that is going on. Again, they don't have a picture of the cross yet. Jesus says, you're gonna have moments where you look to things to be your savior that may not actually be your savior. You will keep looking for me as I have departed. He goes on, verse 34. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Verse 35, he says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus says, if you wanna know what the mark of the church is gonna be as it moves and it breathes throughout society, it's not gonna be if you voted Republican. It's not gonna be if you voted Democrat. It's not gonna be if you chose to take the apathetic route and didn't engage at all. It's not gonna be based on what you post on the internet. It's not gonna be on the opinions that you air out with every social issue that comes up. He says, love is going to be the only thing that marks it. And for his disciple, Peter, this actually gets quite difficult. Verse 36, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? And I love this line. I will lay down my life for you. What's always interesting to me about when Jesus has conversations with Peter, you'll remember that in the gospels, Jesus looks at Peter and he says that he will be what? The rock of the church. He'll be the foundation on which the church is built. He said, you're you're going to help build this thing up. So every time Jesus has a conversation with Peter, it almost feels like there's a metatextual narrative going on. That Jesus is not just looking at Peter, but he's in fact looking at the church for ages to come. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you? I'll lay my life down. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay your life down for me? What a fascinating question. How often have you stood in church, sang a song, prayed a prayer, said, Jesus, wherever you want me to go, I will go. And then Jesus is like, why don't you talk to your neighbor? And you're like, that's too far away. (laughs) 
Jesus, whatever you want me to do, I'll do. Can you be kind to that coworker that you hate? Jesus, anyone else. He says, will you really lay your life down for me? Will you really live with sacrificial love in a way that will actually show the world that you belong to me? And I don't think Jesus asked this to be snarky. I think Jesus recognizes that the human condition is always optimistic, but often struggles with follow through. That we can look at Jesus and say, Jesus, I'd do anything you want. I would advocate for you. I would defend you in the public square. And Jesus says, will you really lay your life down for me? Very truly, I tell you before the rooster crows, you will in fact disown me three times. I wanna invite the band to go and come back up as we get ready to sort of step back into a moment of worship. Jesus looks at Peter, this man who he's told, you will be the, the bedrock of the church. You're gonna help build this thing from the ground up. And Peter says, Jesus, I would do anything for you. I would lay my entire life down for you. Jesus goes, but but would you? When the world says you have to pick a side, would you? When you see that there's injustice and people who are oppressed and in pain, would you? See, church, what I wanna sort of lead us into in this next moment is not a response where we sort of go out and attempt to reclaim the world for Jesus, but a moment where we have honest self-evaluation of where we have given up our prophetic voice as the church, where we have actually chosen sides when Jesus has invited us to be somewhat of a creative minority in this space, where we've actually looked at other things as the savior of the world. And as we do that, the only thing that we can possibly do is surrender to him. So New Life Manitou, I wanna invite you to stand to your feet. I wanna invite you as we step back into worship to simply have a conversation with the Lord. To ask him where the places are where we have become polarized and have therefore been unhelpful in the social world. Where are the places where we have been shut down and become so apathetic about issues, about things that are important, about people? We've actually become somewhat useless to the world. We have no longer become a sign of the kingdom. We've become a detour from the kingdom. Where are the places in our lives where we have actually looked to politicians and other leaders as saviors when Jesus has been the savior of the world this whole time? Where are those places in our lives where Jesus might look at us and say, you got all the rules right, but the sacrificial love that you need to live with has fallen apart. Or he would look at us and say, you're so infatuated with the social concerns of the day that you have lost a view of eternity. Father, as we stand in this space, we raise all of those questions and concerns to you, knowing that you are the only one who can draw us into your presence and form us as you would have us. That the goal of the church is not to be silent. The goal of the church is not to be apathetic to what is going on around us, but the goal of the church is to have a prophetic voice that we speak when things are wrong. And we also encourage those who have power around us to do things that would help the world flourish. That the ultimate call is to not find our identity in a political camp, but to find our identity in Jesus who somehow stands in the middle and holds the tension. And the way in which Jesus holds that tension is ultimately by laying his life down on the cross. And that's what you're calling us to, to be a community of the cross, 
to be people who do not fight for our own freedoms, but are willing to lay our lives down so that others might find life and life abundantly, that we may follow Jesus in that way. So Lord, as we worship, would you continue to speak to us? We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen.